from 88.7 FM WXDU Durham and available online via the World Wide Web. This is Shooting the Bull. I'm Barry Reagan. I write at dependableerection.blogspot.com. My co-host Kevin Davis is on vacation this week. Josh Parker, uh, local community activist and friend of the blogosphere, is uh, is here to fill in for us. Uh, Josh, how are you? I'm great. I don't know if activist is the right word. I didn't bring my Birkenstocks tonight. Well, that's okay. I'm wearing mine, so that, that's 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 enough for uh, for both of us. Uh, Josh Josh has been uh, has been uh, a candidate for office, and I assume that at some point in, in the future he will uh, he will be a candidate again. But since he is not currently a candidate, he can uh, he can say basically whatever he wants to uh, tonight. You are also currently the uh, the chair of the Durham Cultural Master Plan Advisory Committee. Yeah, no, that's a mouthful. Uh-huh. Yeah, no, we've, it's a yeah, joint city-county committee that uh, I've been on for a couple of years. It came out of this cultural master plan that was developed, uh, I guess, in 2002, 2003. I know you love plans, so this is, this is one that's actually getting some attention to it. One, one thing that I have noticed about Durham, we plan. We plan with the best of them. We have plans for our plans. We, we, there, there's a Dilbert cartoon there, if I'm, <laughs> if I'm not mistaken. We, we have plans about plans. Uh, and, anyway, um, in Kevin's absence, one of the things that, um, that Kevin and I have talked about doing is working a little more um, closely uh, with the Independent Weekly, our, uh, our, our local alternative uh, weekly and uh, investigative journalist uh, uh, venue, uh, as as it were in no town, asset. and uh, um, this this week uh, their cover story um, is uh, is about uh, the North Carolina state budget and how it impacts a local institution. Um, uh, the, the institution we're talking about is the Wright Center for Reeducation, which is located on Roxborough Street in uh, in North Durham. And if you're like me, I'm I'm approaching my 16th anniversary of having moved to Durham, which was in uh, in April of 1993, and I have driven past the right center for re-education uh, a thousand times no it's it's uh, right out there and, but no one knows I, I and and outside of making you know of making marxist jokes about uh, about <laughs> rehabilitating uh, people who have um, strayed from the party line uh, i i really have no idea um what, That's what my this job program with the is. cultural revolution master thank, plan the cultural <laughs> revolution thank thank you josh so um so i sat down with lisa with lisa sorg um, earlier today, uh, who, who uh, I, I believe has written the cover story in this week's Independent, to talk about what it is that the Wright Center does and why it's important um, for uh, you know for, for this program to find funding in the budget. So uh, we're going to listen to that interview for a bit, and uh, then Josh and I will be back uh, and and talk about some more uh, cultural revolutionary stuff, I guess. All right. This week's cover story in uh, in the Independent is a state budget. Uh, story, and you're talking about uh, how the budget cuts are going to affect the Wright Center for Reeducation here in uh, here in Durham. Uh, tell me about the Wright Center, and tell me about the the budget cuts, and why this is a problem. Well, the story is about two two facilities. One is called the Wright School, the other is called the Whitaker School, and they both talk of, um, have as their central tenets the reeducation principles, which I'll go into in a second. But they have been around for many years. The Wright School has been around for 46 years. The Whitaker School since 1980. So you can do the math on that. And these schools treat children and teenagers with very severe mental, emotional, neurological, and behavioral disturbances. And they are the only schools of their kind in North Carolina. They are state-funded, and anyone from North Carolina can attend as long as they are referred by their local mental health agency to go there. They're the very hardest cases that we have that go to this school. 
and the budget uh, cuts would eliminate these schools altogether. I think the total is $5.8 million over the um, budget cycle. So they were looking to save that money because it's a very tough budget year, and these schools would then close because of those budget cuts under Governor Purdue's proposal. So right now, are the schools operating at capacity? They are. There are. There is a waiting list for each. All right, so it's about um, 50 students at the Wright Center, which is for younger kids, and about 25 or 30. Yeah, per um, year. Yeah. Older older mm -hmm. students um, up in uh, up in Butner. Yes. Is, is where the is where the other program uh, is. What are the alternatives for these kids if they are forced out of these programs? Where do they go? What programs are available? Why is this such a problem if we lose this program? Well, I think there are two problems. One, to get the kind of services that are available under one roof at both Wright and Whitaker, which includes a public school education, which includes a psychiatrist, which includes counseling, which includes special education and all this kind of behavioral modification, you would have to go to the community to maybe four or five different places to get those kinds of services where you can get them under one roof at Wright and Whitaker. The other thing that's very special about those schools is that the kids stay five days a week and then they go home on the weekends. And the reason for that is so that the family is also reintegrated because these families are very emotionally threadbare by the time their children go to this. They've, you know, the kids have been put in hospitals or they, the police have been called. I mean, this is their last ditch effort. Are the resources even available? You, you said that kids come from all over the state of North Carolina. So you've got kids who are not only coming from cities like Charlotte or, or Raleigh, but also from rural counties. Yes. Um, uh, are, are the services even available in those counties for, for some of these kids? Have, uh, have, have the parents looked at that before? You know the kids come here. Some ki you know some counties don't have even the barest minimum of services, and so, for example, to even get your kid in right school, someone in that rural county would have had to have gone to maybe their local mental health association sponsored by the county, and then the county refers them. But you know we're very fortunate in the Triangle where you have maybe the Durham Center or you have Carolina Outreach or you have all these services. But you know if you live in the mountains or in you know southern North Carolina in the rural areas, you really don't have any options, especially anything remotely close to this. Now, with a population of under 100 students uh, for these two programs, it's, it's a very small constituency. Are, they, uh, are, are, are the parents trying to organize to save this program? Is there, uh, you know, is, is, is there uh, a, a group effort being put together here? And, and tell me about that. And you know, tell me if, if any of our listeners might have um, a relative uh, a child or, or know someone who has a child. Maybe they're not in the program, but maybe the program is something that might be something they need in the future. You know, how, how would they, if they're interested in this, how would they, how would they do anything about it? Well, first of all, I found out um, about a parents group through Facebook, actually. There was, um, a, I think it's called NC Parents for Right School. Yes, there is a critical mass of parents for the right school. I, I heard from a man today who had worked at Whitaker School, and his concern with the stories, and I would, I would acknowledge this, I didn't go down the Whitaker School rabbit hole very far because it was very difficult to find parents to talk about that. And a lot of these kids don't have family or community in Whitaker, so they are even probably more so underrepresented. Um, in terms of if you are a parent or a caregiver and you would think your child would possibly qualify for this, there is a resource guide in the Indy this week which gives you different mental health associations you can go to. You have to basically go to your uh, your county has a mental health organization. There's a committee that's there, and you would then apply to the committee 
who would then look at your kids, um, any kind of run-ins with the law, any problems at school, and then they would make a recommendation either to an, another service or if they decide right schools for your kid, then that's where you would go. And you would fill out an, an application to go to the right school. Assuming that the program exists is, is, is still there in the future. Now we, we have talked about um, about the state budget. We're looking at $5.8 million for these two programs over a two-year cycle. So the state budget runs on a two-year cycle and they develop it in non-election years. I assume there is some political wisdom uh, that went behind making, making that decision. Um, there is right now an unallocated sum of money that our legislature is divvying up. It's the last of the of the un, uh, uncommitted funds in the budget, and somewhere 100, 105? 105 million, according to Ellie Kinnaird. Right. Um, what are some of the programs that are competing for, uh, for, for this money, and where does, where does the, the, the Wright School and the Whitaker Center, where do they fit in in, in priorities? What, what, are the, what are the political alignments that, that people are looking at here? Well, I think everyone is going to want a piece of that $105 million, whether it's natural resources, whether it's corrections, whether it's mental health. I mean, it's a free-for-all. It's like the buffet, you know, everybody's going to be going for it. In terms of the political alignments, I spoke with um, Senator Doug Berger, who had a really good point. I mean, he was kind of the devil's advocate on this particular issue, saying, you know, I, I can spend X million dollars and give insurance to children who are uninsured, and I have a responsibility for the greater good here. So there are other ways that, you know, you could spend that money. My argument in the story is that somehow you're actually cost shifting. You may save 5.8 million today, but you may pay for it later and through the correctional system, through psychiatric beds and acute care facilities, which actually Governor Purdue increased funding for, which is all well and good, but you could make the argument, well, maybe you wouldn't need those acute facilities later, as many of them, if you tackled it on the front end. Well, Josh, you know, you serve uh, you serve the county as the uh, as the chair of the cultural cultural master plan advisory committee and we we talk about budgets uh, a, a lot um, budgets especially this year are are a real a real problem yeah they're they're tight to say the least and this is a this is a really interesting way to highlight uh, what's happening at the state level and at the local levels and and I think you make the point that um, this is a, a very important program that serves a population of folks who really don't get services anywhere else, and they don't have a large constituency group behind them. Uh, and those are the folks that, that most need to be kept in the budget. Uh, and so this is what happens when budgets get tight, the programs without constituencies get cut. Uh, and we see this happen. You, you go to city budget hearings, you go to county budget hearings, you go down to the legislature right now and watch all the sausage that's being made. The people who scream the loudest get the money. And it's right. unfortunate right. because folks like this who need it aren't going to be able to do that. One, one, of, one of the concerns that I have about, about local government, and I guess it's uh, state government, although I don't really you know, deal with, uh, with, with that level of government, is the short attention span that our elected officials have. Basically, if you are the last person in and you are the loudest person to speak, right. uh, you're the one who gets remembered when it, when it comes time to, uh, to, to fund 
you know, to fund these things. Uh, you know, um, Lisa and I talked uh, talked a little bit more, and and I need to remind folks there was a there was a technical glitch during the intro, so I need to remind folks that um, the opinions expressed during the course of this program do belong to the people who express them and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of WXDU, uh, the station management, or Duke University, or Kevin so, Davis, or Kevin man, Davis, yeah. who is not here tonight. So we, uh, I, you know, Josh, I, I understand you you filled in for me uh, six months or so ago when when I was uh, out in. Uh, um, what is uh, what, what at one time was called Baghdad by the Bay yeah. uh, in in San Francisco, uh, and I hear you had bad things to say about me while I was gone. So now it's yeah, my right. turn. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> never, never, Barry. No, no. We we told everyone you were on assignment. Oh, okay, and and I was, I was, I was looking for pizza by the slice. In, uh, in, in, you didn't bring in, any back for us, though. I'm still uh, waiting. Well, um, what I'm waiting for is to be able to to get you pizza by the slice here in Durham, in downtown Durham. You know, Lent is almost over. Uh, this this uh, weekend right, is, is Easter right. weekend. And I did, uh, um, not only did I give up blogging for a good part of, of that time, but I gave up Pizza by the Slice, which was one of the easiest things that I've ever that I've ever had to give up, but uh, Lisa and I continued um, continued our conversation. One of one of the issues that um, that came up is is well, isn't there federal money uh, available mm. for this program? Um, for example, isn't there um, Medicaid funding? You know, why isn't uh, this program being covered uh, that way? And and Lisa had some some interesting answers about that. So I think that 105 million, everybody's going to be going at it. All right. We um we we talked briefly earlier. Uh, about the Medicaid issue. These, these programs, uh, even though they are health-related programs, they're not covered by Medicaid because of the structure of the, of the programs. What's the advantage of keeping the structure the same um, as opposed to modifying it and then maybe making them Medicaid eligible? Why, why, why is that not being considered? Well, I think there are two, supposedly two reasons why Medicaid does not pay for these facilities. One of them, in the case of the Wright School, one of the justifications is it's a very old building. It's 60 years old and it would need renovated and Medicaid has certain requirements for their buildings, supposedly. The second part is that Medicaid does not pay for programs, for residential programs, for example, where the kids go home on the weekends. You would have to be there seven days a week for six months instead of five days a week for six months. And the reason that that's not being considered for the right school is that one of the, the central tenets of the re-education principles, which was they were founded by a very famous uh, psychologist named Nicholas Hobbs, was that to go home on the weekend, it's kind of hitting the reset button on the family. The family also gets a set of instructions, the siblings. It's a way to reintegrate and heal the family in a very holistic way rather than just pulling the kid out into isolation, trying to fix them, and then throwing them back in. I mean, that's almost like jail, you know. That's why people can't reintegrate into their communities. So it's this reintegration portion of re-education is what makes it so special, what makes it work, and by removing that just for the sake of Medicaid would kind of be unraveling the, in, the entire reason for its existence. All right. So the budget cycle is going to play out now over the next six weeks, eight weeks, something like that, and uh, and we'll know, uh, and, and, and I'm sure that you will follow up on uh, on this story so uh, so your readers and our listeners can uh, can find out how this works out uh, over the next uh, over the next month or two uh, any other um, any other stories that you're working on that uh, that you want to share with our, our, our listeners I hear that Matt had some uh, updates on, uh, on Kennington Heights. Heights well I just think there's some interesting things going on down there he uh, wrote about Anita Keith Faust and her ties to a church that 
seems like it's pretty easy to become a pastor of. <laughs> For, you know, it's basically write in and pay us $20. And so I, we didn't accuse her of any wrongdoing, but we just raised questions about the legitimacy of putting certain properties in a church's name if you're not really doing the work of some deity or some higher spiritual so, order. So, so she is one of the people who is looking to sell um, her property in Kennington Heights. And, and the background on, on the Kennington Heights story is this is a, uh, a residential development down in South Durham. Um, where a developer is seeking to purchase all of the residential properties and have them converted to a commercial development. And in order to do that, the developer needs all of the properties. If they get 98%, they will not be able to get the rezoning that they're looking for. And I guess some people are looking to hold out for, for more money, or some people are look, actually looking to prevent the development from from happening. Right, I think there's what they want to offer twenty point five million dollars. I think is the offer on the table. And, it's and fifty five acres worth of property. Yeah, I don't know that like they that. need everyone, but they need uh -huh. a lot. Of, they need okay. a critical mass of people. And I think we talked earlier, you know, about why Walmart would want to go there. And there's a right. super target there, and there's a competition. And I would add, I think we talked about, you know, the demise of of the mall. When I I lived in San Antonio, Texas, for five and a half years, and there were empty mall, WalMarts. There were probably three in the city. My understanding is that Walmart is the largest um, owner of vacant retail property, uh, probably in the world and certainly in the United States. Sure. So there is a certain concern there, not only about how the property is being bought or sold or who will profit, but just the necessity of that and what will happen if, if it doesn't do well and there's vacancies. All right. Well, we'll be watching that story, too, and hopefully we'll get Matt uh, back into the studio uh, sometime in the future to follow up on that and, uh, and the Jordan Lake story, which, uh, which is um, coming to a head in the, next, uh, in the next week or two. April 13th. In fact, we'll have a story online on April 14th after the commissioners vote on the 13th. Right. And, and what's happening with that is uh, the commissioners are going to vote as to whether they will be conducting their own survey of, uh, of, of Jordan Lake or a publicly funded survey um, to replace the privately funded survey that uh, they actually voted to accept uh, a while back, but a lot of citizens have been urging them to change their position on. So we'll see what happens with that. Lisa, thanks for um, taking some time to sit down with me today, and uh, I hope that uh, we'll see you again uh, later on in the month or, or, or sometime in May, and we'll make this a regular feature on the show. That sounds great. Thanks, Barry. All right. Thank you. All right, uh, Lisa Sorg, the uh, the editor of uh, the Independent, uh, joining me uh, at her office, where uh, I guess there was some repaving work <laughs> going on in the background, which, right. uh, which 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 you may have heard some of uh, during uh, during the course of uh, during the course of the interview, which was conducted earlier uh, this afternoon. I just want to remind you that you're listening to Shooting the Bull. I'm Barry Reagan. I write at dependableerection.blogspot.com. Josh Parker is here filling in for Kevin Davis, who is the publisher of Bull City Rising. Dot com. We were talking. Um, we've been talking about uh, budgets. We were uh, talking about uh, funding. One uh, one bit of good news that uh, the Herald Sun and uh, and uh, Kevin um, reported today is that sidewalk projects in uh, in the city of Durham that have been uh, at the top of the Durham Walks uh, priority list for the past oh three and a half years, I guess, uh, are are getting stimulus money from the federal government. Now wait a minute before we get into that. This is a little inside baseball. The Durham Walks plan. What what is the Durham Walks plan? Because I, I know you participated in this, but it's been sitting on a shelf for so long. I don't know if anybody remembers it. Uh, back in uh, I believe two thousand and five, uh, the city of Durham appropriated three hundred and thirteen thousand dollars. Um, to conduct a study uh, on how to make Durham a more walkable community. Uh, a good 
chunk of that money went to a, uh, a survey using GPS technology to actually map out where all of the existing sidewalks um, are right. in Durham uh, to find out uh, and, and to physically take an inventory. Um, somebody actually went around to all the existing sidewalks to make notes of where they were broken, uh, where there were gaps. Um, you know, like if, if the city's inventory said that sidewalk went from point A to point B, but there was actually a 300-yard gap in between those points, somebody actually walked the sidewalks and, and, and made a mm-hmm. note of that. Um, then uh, a series of public hearings were held. I believe there were four public hearings that were held around, um, uh, around town, maybe five. I think it were actually five, one in each yeah, of the packs. Yeah, that sounds right. And, and people responded and, and gave their opinions of where they wanted sidewalks. And then um, uh, a, a scientific study was done um, of, you know, how many people might use a particular pedestrian thoroughfare, how many people do use a pedestrian thoroughfare, whether there are parks nearby, whether there are schools nearby, whether there are other amenities that people might be walking to. And a plan was put together uh, prioritizing all the intersections and streets and and areas that lacked sidewalks that lacked crosswalks that lacked other pedestrian safety amenities and prioritized which which so projects an should incredibly be incredibly comprehensive plan these folks spent tons of consultant man hours there were citizens sitting on a panel there was a ton of input it got Accepted by the city council, uh, in and then two thousand seven. The first time I've heard it mentioned <laughs> by by somebody from the city was uh, at uh, at coffee with council just a couple of weeks ago. Where, um, as always happens at coffee with council, and if you've never been to a coffee with council, these are um, events that are held every year in February and and early March in which uh, many, if not all, of our, our city council members and, and high-ranking staff uh, show up at a PAC meeting, a Partners Against Crime meeting, mm-hmm. and citizens uh, express their desires for what they want to see in the budget. And I, you know, I haven't been to every single coffee with council that is, you know, takes place around the city, but I have been to the ones in my district for the last three or four years. And far and away, the number one request that that is made during these sessions is people walk up to the microphone and say, I need a sidewalk on X block. That's right. I need a sidewalk on A, B, C block. And I sit there and I say, we spent $313,000, your money and my money, uh, developing a plan to build these sidewalks. Right. Where are they? Where are they? If you go back far enough, and Josh, you were probably still in diapers back then, but the <laughs> 10 ni- or so years ago, <laughs> the nineteen ninety six, the nineteen ninety six bond fund um, had several million dollars for sidewalks. And if you look at the marketing material that the city put together to sell that bond to the voting public, it included the phrase, "This money will pay for a sidewalk on one side of every major thoroughfare in the city of Durham." Oh yeah. It's, we're very good with marketing bonds. I, but what's interesting is because of the state of the economy and the federal stimulus program that was um, signed in uh, to law by President Obama, what now, two, two or three weeks ago. Uh, Seems like forever. I know. Yeah, Durham, Durham is getting its, its fair share, I, I will say. And Kevin highlighted on in his blog today one of the things that this money is going to immediately is sidewalks and greenways. Now, it, it talks about shovel-ready projects. I'm still trying to figure out what that means, but uh, Kevin highlights a couple of interesting projects. One I know that uh, that impacts an area near you on uh, Washington Street. Washington, Washington Street. I have been an advocate for a sidewalk on Washington Street since I mentioned before I moved here in 1993. Um, the house that I moved into then was a block off of Washington Street. Both of my children uh, attended Club Boulevard Elementary School, um, and they were in the walk zone. And living... 
about three-eighths of a mile from Club Boulevard. My kids would have had to walk along Washington Street for about a quarter mile of that, and I wouldn't let them do it. Too dangerous. Too, a, way too dangerous. It's a very wide road, too. It is. Uh, I think I paced it out at somewhere near 48 feet wide, maybe maybe 50 feet wide, for a two-lane road. It's like well over 22 feet per wow. lane. Um, 12, 12 feet or 11 feet per lane is the standard uh, for a road like that. So I'm really hoping that the sidewalks that, um, that make it onto Washington Street actually get built in from the current curb and not out from the current curb where they actually cut into you know people's property. Oh, that would and, be and, interesting, yeah, because yeah. it's going to go all the way from Trinity, sort of on the edge of downtown, right. into Glendale in the Duke Park neighborhoods. Actually, so, um, I believe that the you know because Glendale runs parallel to Washington, um, a block or two east. But oh, okay. um, when it when Glendale actually continues in Northgate Park on the other side of of the freeway, so I'm, I believe. I believe that, that, yeah, when Glendale curves, that that's what they're talking about. Now, there's already a sidewalk over the bridge, and there's already some sidewalks down um, near, near Trinity Avenue um, in, uh, in, in the old North Durham neighborhood. So, so we'll see. But when I look at Washington Street, I see what should be a promenade from the north of the freeway into the it, it runs right by the old ballpark it runs right up to um to to the to the carolina theater yep. and right up to uh um the ccb plaza yep. uh you know on uh once once corcoran street got realigned and that should be uh, and and it's the only it's the only one of the roads that comes into durham that does not have access to either i-85 or nc-147 so the other roads, you know, as as Gary Kieber highlighted uh, at Endangered Durham on uh, on April Fool's Day, yep. um, with uh, with his uh, his Greg Mag rocks and freeway <laughs> interchange um, post, which uh, which which was wonderful, and I hope you all had a chance to check that out. Um, those other roads, Gregson, Duke Street, um, Mangum, Roxborough Street. All function as on ramps for I eighty five and right. NC one forty seven, and those of us who live along those corridors are are constantly fighting uh, people speeding through our neighborhoods. I, and, I tend to use Washington yeah. Street as as a downtown resident when I'm in Northern Durham. I tend to use Washington because uh, Gregson and and Duke are just they're they're very congested. They're dangerous streets right. and now, especially as a pedestrian. Oh my god! Especially and my my favorite my favorite deal and I, I I've 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 spoken with people in the city on this and some action has been taken but not enough if you ask me is the person on Gregson Street who's doing the construction in their backyard and had the sidewalk blocked oh, for yeah. for four months I've with a pile that. of sand. <laughs> do That's... you do you do you need a permit in the city of Durham to block a sidewalk? Am I the only am I the only one? Yeah. <laughs> who, who, who sees who sees this who sees this kind of thing? So anyway, um, some of the other projects that there, uh, that are going to get some money. Yeah, Hillen, Hillendale Road, uh, north of Carver Street, uh, I think. Um, Hillsborough Road around uh, Markham. You know, that's an important area uh, where Hillsborough and Markham interchange around Ninth Street and Broad Street. Uh, University Drive also very heavily traveled, not very friendly to pedestrians. I see folks walking up and down there quite a bit between right. those businesses. Right. Uh, Garrett Road and Hope Valley Road in South Durham. What about East Durham? Are are, are there any projects uh, uh, listed? Uh, over in uh, Dearborn on Dearborn Drive, uh, okay. uh, sort of in I guess you you might call that 
northeastern, not northeast central Durham, but northeastern. Right, because right, one of one of the things that we learned, and and I did uh, I did serve on the uh, on, on the Durham Walks Pedestrian Plan Advisory Committee a few years ago. One of the things that we learned is that the most dangerous areas in the city for pedestrians um, are uh, East Durham. They're they're on um, they're on Anger, yep. um, they're on um, um, Austin Avenue. And they're on Holloway Street. Yeah. And we just uh, just about six weeks ago, somebody was uh, critically injured on, uh, on on Holloway Street near Miami Boulevard, um, basically just walking uh, walking across the street. I went out there for a walk and found huge pavement, no crosswalks, um, bus stops, no crosswalks. And uh, you know, once uh, somebody said uh, at a meeting um, a couple of, a couple of weeks ago, it might even have been the um, uh, the coffee with council meeting. Once you get off the bus, you're a pedestrian. Oh yeah, you know. So so bus stations are pedestrian amenities. They're not just places to wait for for the bus. When you you mentioned buses too, I, I think we're getting a bunch of bus shelters with this. Um, so hopefully hopefully this is all going to start to tie together, and maybe this is a way to bring this plan back to the fore and start advocating it. And I I, I want to switch, switch switch topics though with you, Barry. As I look out the window here at WXDU over at the the lovely Trinity Heights neighborhood, I can't be. Can't can't help but be reminded of what has been in the press lately, uh, with folks in that neighborhood being upset about uh, Duke students. And as I sit here on campus and I look at that neighborhood, I can't help but think you moved next to a university. What did you expect? Well, you know, I, I gotta say, um, I mean, I, I don't live next to a university, um, but I do live in uh, what what some people would refer to as a transitional neighborhood, and uh, certainly people have said that to me. And I think that when you move into a house, regardless of exactly where it's located, I think you have a reasonable expectation that your neighbors will obey the law, and that if they don't obey the law, that the people whose job it is to enforce the law will do what they can to you know make those folks obey the law. You know, I, I hear you on that, and I think the city's got a role to play. Duke certainly has a role to play. But I, I think it's also important to remember, if you look back several years ago, we were talking about you know, folks having parties in the basement with girls in bikinis, uh, wrestling in baby pools. Right. You know, we and kegs throwing out of windows. I mean, we we've come a long way. You know, I'll, I'll, I'll grant you. I'll grant you that, Josh. We are out of time. Um, I've been talking with uh, Josh Parker. I'm Barry Reagan. I write at dependableerection.blogspot.com. Kevin Davis will be back next week. Uh, Kevin publishes bullcityrising.com. We will talk to you then um, uh, for another edition of Shooting the Bull. Take care. A pleasure.